0: to another episode. Same day, part two of the Atlanta Child Murders and Behavioral Analysis and the Behavioral Analysis Unit. Um, If you're just popping over from part one, welcome back. If you're coming in just for behavioral analysis, hello, welcome. Um, I'm Nicole. I am joined by Journey and Rebecca again. Um, if you haven't listened to a part one, Journey told us all about the Atlanta child murders, and we did some theorizing with that. And now we're going to pass the the torch off to Rebecca um, to give us a little history, a little insight, and just a little more information about behavioral analysis. So why don't right.
1: you take it away? <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Nicole. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, if you haven't watched part one of this or listened to it, definitely go check it out. We talk. Uh, even more about John Douglas and his connection to the Atlanta child murders in this discussion of the uh, behavioral analysis. Um, But yeah, just to get right into it, behavioral analysis is a systematic approach that's used to understand, interpret, predict, predict, Sorry, and predict human behavior, and it involves observing, recording, as well as analyzing patterns of behavior to gain insights into underlying motivations, intentions, and psychological processes. I'm not going to go super deep into applied behavioral and generalized behavioral analysis, um, because it's actually used in a lot of different contexts and therapeutical settings. It's not only for profiling criminals, but just briefly... Also called applied behavioral analysis or ABA, it um, is often known to people who are not obsessed with true crime. It's often known for being used in mental health settings, classrooms, uh, substance abuse treatment programs, workplaces, public health interventions, and essentially everywhere that we feel human behavior needs to be analyzed in order to help someone create correct a behavior that is undesirable. So for example, it has been found to be beneficial in the settings I just mentioned, because it helps both children and adults to learn more positive social skills and communication skills. And like I said, it also helps in in reducing maladaptive behaviors, which is often kind of what is seen in someone with a substance abuse disorder. While behavioral analysis or applied behavioral analysis is highly beneficial in these settings, it's not really the behavioral analysis that we true crime lovers know from our TV shows. (laughs) Um, As far as I know, the FBI doesn't offer therapeutic services to criminals, so what are they using it for? (laughs) Um, In terms of crime, behavioral analysis is used more so to predict the behavior of an individual in certain criminal settings, as well as to analyze the clues that we have from crime scenes in order to identify potential motives how they might choose their victims or who might be at risk of being victimized, um, where, when they're more likely to commit a crime, and even stuff such as like the personality or physical attributes of a perpetrator. So um, this is also used not only to, in the Atlantic Child Murders, for instance, it's not only used to help identify a perpetrator who's already been committing crimes, but it can help us in situations like with identifying active shooters, potentially before they actually commit a crime of mass murder. With this being said, with like the applied behavioral analysis, criminal behavior analysis, just because the history of both of these are surprisingly different, I am going to focus obviously today on the criminal behavior analysis and criminal profiling, because these things very much merge together. And in fact, when the FBI opened their behavioral science unit, behavioral analysis wasn't really a term it was actually just known as criminal profiling. And it was later in the decades of use that they ended up kind of changing that coin term. So as I had just mentioned, I got to be honest, I did a lot of research into like the history of the psychology field of behaviorism, um, starting with like B.F. Skinner, um, because I thought that was going to be really relevant because, you know, behavioral analysis, criminal behavior analysis, they have the same words in them. Turns out, They very much did not uh, come from the same thing. So scratch all of that research. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, yeah, just here to say that behaviorism research, which basically is like B.F. Skinner teaching us that um, punishment and reinforcement aids in increasing good behavior, minimizing bad behavior. Or Watson's study of little Albert, where he had a young boy, he developed a fear in uh, white rats and ultimately pretty much every white fluffy thing because they altered his behavior through like stimuli. That is a different behavioral analysis than is used by generally the FBI. So I'm going to talk more about the case study background of behavior analysis and crime, because that is essentially how it completely developed. <laughs> that makes sense. So all occurring before the beginning of behaviorism in psychology, the first time that um, it was kind of accepted that criminal behavior analysis was officially used the first time was used by two physicians in London um, in 1888. Their names were George Phillips and Thomas Bond. And they created what is known as the first criminal profile um, Hmm. in history. So in 1888, Ah. Jack the Ripper was still on the loose and had already killed five women in this one year. All investigative efforts had turned up empty handed so far. And George Phillips and Thomas Bond knew that they kind of needed to try something new to catch this person who was terrorizing London. So in the fall of nineteen sorry of 1888, Phillips and Bond examined all of the known forensic evidence from the crime scenes, as well as all of the autopsy results that came up from each of the victims. And they kind of developed predictions about what they suspected Jack the Ripper's personality, characteristics, and lifestyle would be like based on what they saw at the crime scenes. So following their own investigation into all of the case documents. Bond wrote a report that detailed their joint prediction. And it was in this report that he stated, quote, all five murders, no doubt, were committed by the same hand. The women must have been lying down when murdered. And in every case, the throat was cut first, unquote. He further stated that Jack the Ripper likely had no medical training or knowledge of anatomy despite um, how extensively the victims had been mutilated and cut up. And this was actually very surprising to law enforcement at the time. And to be honest, it was also very surprising to me because every theory I have heard about Jack the Ripper was that he was probably a surgeon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so it was up until this point they made their first prediction that it was the leading theory that Jack the Ripper was either a physician, a surgeon, or at least had extensive medical training due to the fact that, that he had removed the internal organs of some of his victims. And obviously they were very cut up, Besides only being mutilated. Like they had very visible cuts throughout their body. Mm-hmm. Were
2: they like clean cuts? Like he knew what he was going for? Or are they kind of just like hacked at and like moved around and kind of just like they decided to open them up and then see what organs were in there?
1: So that's where I get a lot of contradicting information because it was my understanding just of like everything I've read about Jack the Ripper, that they were very clean, methodical incisions.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: But according to the report that was written by Bond and Phillips, but they had apparently reached their conclusion that they probably didn't have medical backgrounds because they observed, quote, gaping wounds on the victims that didn't look as methodically made as like every article makes them out to be. Interesting. Yeah, so they had said that because of the gaping wounds that were inflicted, they basically stated that that none of them looked consistent with cuts that would be made um, by someone, or were didn't look consistent with cuts expected to be made. Sorry, by someone in um, training of a medical expert, or quote even the technical knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer unquote. So basically, not only did they go against law enforcement saying, I don't think your guy is a surgeon, but they even were like basically saying that they don't even think it was a butcher. Like this person was so untalented, like they were just removing organs however they could. Mm
2: -hmm. Interesting.
1: Okay. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Also, before I go further, there is going to be a lot of quotes in this. (laughs) from like direct criminal profiles and stuff. I didn't want to reword those. But Bond's report further predicted that Jack the Ripper was, quote, a man of solitary habits, subject to periodic attacks of homicidal and erotic mania, and the character of the mutilations, possibly indicating satiriasis, unquote, which apparently also means uncontrollable sexual desire, which I couldn't find a lot about like how they reached a lot of these conclusions. But I do suspect this one came from the fact that all of the women were thought to be prostitutes who had been murdered. Um, so he was likely using that as an act of power over prostitutes, as he was an uncontrollably sexual man. Interesting,
2: because I never heard of like there being a sexual element to mm-hmm. the Jack the
1: Ripper cases. Right, me too. But like, mm-hmm. it kind of makes sense now, just seeing the brutality of the crime scenes, and also like thinking, and this this goes into criminal profiling, which I'll mention a little later. But just looking at similarities between the victims and the fact that they were all prostitutes, um, mm-hmm. I know that. And this sounds harsh to say, but it's true in many true crime cases that prostitutes, unfortunately, might be easier victims because they're people of the streets, uh, quote mm-hmm. unquote. Um, but yeah, it's weird that like it just it just never came to mind. But yeah, I agree. Yeah. So furthermore, in the Jack the Ripper case, Bond stated in his report that, quote, the murderer must have had been a man of physical strength and of great coolness and daring. The murderer in external appearance is quite likely to be quite inoffensive looking man and probably middle aged and neatly and respectively dressed. Um, He would be solitary and eccentric in his habits, unquote. I love that they're able
0: to decipher all of that off of a crime and like just the mannerisms of a crime
2: me too that's literally just like he's an attractive middle-aged man of attractive is so subjective too like
0: what is attractive to you then how is that going to influence your understanding of this profile right yeah
1: absolutely like i i find it fascinating how um Basically, what George Phillips and Thomas Bond came up with, like there was a bunch of stuff that they said. The police were like, "Hang on, wait a minute, where did you even get this?" (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and then they'd explain their stance, and they're like, "Okay, well, yeah, maybe." That (laughs) (laughs) yeah, and like obviously too. At this point, like it's 1888. Psychology is still very early. I think technically, the father of psychology started his experiments in like 1834. So that's only like 50 years ago. Wow. Oh yeah. So So this is very much people just going on like a hunch and kind of I assume basing it what they've seen as physicians and investigators, but I just think it's fascinating that we've even gotten here from that point.
2: Mm -hmm. I also appreciate the words used in that area because like he would be solitary and eccentric in his habits. To me, he would be weird.
1: Yeah. 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 An odd man who's a loner. Like I also love that they call him an inoffensive looking man. Like to me, that <laughs> means like he wasn't particularly attractive, but like he looked he just fine. He just yeah. blended into the crowd. Like he was yeah, he weird. blends in.
2: Yeah. yeah, he's just a regular man. Absolutely. Yeah. Like
1: that's that's kind of what I got from that, too. Yeah,
2: that's funny.
1: And even though this is like the first kind of known case of criminal profiling, and it would be so fantastic to be able to see how accurate they were with this, as we probably all know, Jack the Ripper is a very famous case because he was one of the most prolific early serial killers, and we still don't know his identity. So we actually won't know how accurate (laughs) this profile was, but it was still significant because it was the first time it's really been used in a legitimate investigation.
0: Side tangent, have you guys ever seen that TV show where it's like, My family member could be Jack the Ripper and it's about him like delving into his family archives and DNA and genealogy, trying to trace it back to see if it was a family member. I that's think, so yeah,
1: cute. I can't remember if that's a YouTube series or a real show, but he thinks it's like his grandfather or something, yeah. right? Yeah. Like he I, his, his grandfather was a physician and he's like, I firmly believe my grandfather was the yeah. Ripper. <laughs> Just that's outing so his cool. granddad
0: on TV. <laughs> oh man, we're <laughs> going to have to look into it. that. Yeah. yeah. I remember watching it on TV, but knowing YouTube, like it's most likely been added onto YouTube as like a channel. Yeah, I'll do some that's digging totally around. All right. Just a side tangent.
1: (laughs) But just moving on from Jack the Ripper, in terms of famous cases, I had a bit of trouble finding like any notable case of criminal profiling between these times, which leads me to believe this was like the next most notable case in this history. (laughs) So the first notable example of criminal profiling being used in the United States was in the year of Like 1956 to 57. And this was to figure out the identity of the New York mad bomber who had been terrorizing New York for 16 years um, at the time that they began using criminal profiling. Wow. Yeah. Also, small tangent, criminal behavioral analysis and criminal profiling are sort of two separate things, but criminal profiling falls under the other one. And from my research are very, very, very interconnected. Behavioral analysis is essentially like the science behind profiling. so I'm I'm kind of talking about both of them at this time because they were kind of just used in tandem in cases. Okay, but talking about the New York uh, Mad bomber, this was a moniker given to an unidentified, unidentified individual who from the years of 1940 to 1956, had planted at least 33 bombs, Uh, they were confirmed, so at least 33 bombs around various famous or well-known locations in New York. And while the bombs did not result in any casualties, at least 15 people were injured during this time. So over these 16 years, the New York Police Department basically never stopped investigating. Over those 16 years, the NYPD worked basically nonstop with experts in every forensic field that they could link to the case in an attempt to identify the mad bomber. They worked with bomb experts. They worked with fingerprint experts. They worked with handwriting experts, basically everything that could potentially give them a lead on this case, they did. And they had very little progress in this time. So it wasn't until they really kind of thought they tried everything until the captain of the NYPD at the time, John Cronin, had approached his friend. His name was James Brussel, asking him to meet with the head of the NYPD's crime lab. So, a little bit about James Brussel. He was a trained psychiatrist, criminologist, and he was also the current assistant commissioner of the New York State Commission for Mental Hygiene, which at the time essentially, like he he was very very involved in the treatment of patients at mental asylums in New York. Um, so, he had a lot of research with. Severely mentally ill patients, including with diseases or disorders such as schizophrenia and psychosis, depression, anxiety, like pretty much everything under the sun is what he was assisting with. But in addition to these roles that he has, um, he also had experience working in counterintelligence profiling during World War II and the Korean War. Um, He did this with the American Army. He was in one of their medical divisions. His name sounds really familiar, and I don't know why. I know. I thought the same thing as well, but doing my research, like the only thing I would have heard about him would have been his involvement in the Mad Bomber, which, quite frankly, I didn't realize who it was until I started doing research and recognized his head, his mugshot, because his face, and specifically his eyes, scare me. Fair enough. I was going to Google it. Now I'm not going to. <laughs> yeah. No, he's got like, his eyes have no soul. Uh, he's a frightening man. Yikes. Not Dr. Brussels, but the Mad Bomber. <laughs> Wild. Well, and like, dude, he was
2: active for 16 years. That's insane.
1: Yeah. And, um, so I'm not going into a lot of super intense details about the Mad Bombers crimes in particular, because the more I researched, the more I realized how interesting of an episode it would make.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect.
1: Yeah, really interesting. He took like, um, I want to say a seven to 10 year hiatus from bombings. But it's because the police basically asked and they were like, hey, can you stop bombing? And he was <laughs> like, um... I guess so, but I'm going to send a bunch of threatening letters to everyone for the next 10 years. And then after all those threatening letters, I guess he got bored and he continued bombing New York. I don't know. We'll look into it in a new episode. What a man. (laughs) I know. Yeah. So over the 16 years that he was active, including the years that he wasn't actively creating bombs, he did send countless letters and postcards essentially all over New York. He sent them to police stations, to newspapers. To private citizens who seemingly had nothing to do with the case. And he even sent letters to a company called Consolidated Edison, which was a power plant located in, I believe, northern Manhattan in New York. So, initially, when Dr. Brussel was um, approached to do this work, he declined to help um, because he said that he was very, very busy as an assistant commissioner. He had a lot of work to do with his patients. But when he was pressed to do it, he then expressed that he actually had reservations about it because this kind of work had never quite been done before, and he feared that he would end up leading the police in the wrong direction, stating, quote, I don't know what you expect me to do. If the experts haven't cracked this case in more than 10 years of trying, what could I do to contribute? Unquote. However, after even more pushing, he was soon convinced to help as he kind of felt that he couldn't not be involved in one of New York's largest manhunts if he was offered the opportunity. So similar to what Bond and Phillips did in the Jack the Ripper case, Brussel took all of the existing evidence that they had from the Mad Bomber cases and he examined everything from the crime scenes uh, to the letters that he had sent people. But using his expertise as both a psychiatrist and a criminologist, Brussel would perform what he called quote, reverse psychology, which we have since learned is actually just criminal profiling. It just didn't have a real name. And his so-called reverse psychology, he specifically said he modeled it after methods that were used by the fictional detective C. August Dupin, which was a character written by Edgar Allan Poe.
2: Oh, I've never heard of him. Edgar Allan Poe? No.
1: uh, The The, no, the detective. See August Dupin. If um, if you want, I mean, I love Edgar Allan Poe. But <laughs> if you, if you want to watch a TV show that kind of blends a little bit of everything together with Edgar Allan Poe, and you're going to learn so many story and character names, you should watch The Fall of the House of Usher because the main detective name is August Dupin. <laughs> oh, and it's based okay. on yeah, and it's based on Edgar Allan Poe's book. The fall of the House of Usher. <laughs> okay right I knew that okay It's a really great show. I know nothing about Edgar Allan Poe so
0: y'all can continue with that one
1: <laughs> Yeah <laughs> All right well highly recommend but yeah August Dupin just really really brief side tangent fictional detective written by Edgar Allan Poe he okay. was one of the inspirations for Sherlock Holmes. Oh cool oh, okay okay so he was like kind of the OG OG fictional detective. <laughs> okay Fine. moving on from that I struggled a little to find a specific timeline of how long it took brussel to put the profile together but based on the articles I was reading it didn't really take him any more than a few hours of reviewing evidence to like give them a pretty detailed look I'm not sure wow if that was kind of to make them look good because I, I also read things that said he published a paper about his criminal profiling, but purposely changed some of the information in this paper to make it sound like he was more accurate than he truly was with the Mad Bomber. But again, like sources are so varying. So it could have only taken him a few hours. It may have also taken him a few weeks. But either way, when he was finished his profile, he brought it back to the police and he explained to them that he believed the Mad Bomber was, quote, a textbook paranoid schizophrenic, unquote. Because it was so common with the disorder, the Mad Bomber was likely, quote, reclusive, antisocial and held a lot of anger for a perceived enemy, unquote. So he further stated that people with paranoid schizophrenia are capable of acting normally and existing in society However, they might become irrational or unstable if their delusions kind of enter their day-to-day life. So, Brussels stated, quote, we all get mad at other people and organizations sometimes, but with most of us, the anger evaporates eventually. The paranoiac's anger doesn't. Once he gets the idea that somebody has wronged him or is out to hurt him, the idea stays in his mind. And this was obviously true of the Mad Bomber, unquote. Interesting. Yeah. So... Continuing on that, Brussel further stated that he believed the Mad Bomber was likely in his mid-40s, but probably older. And this was based on the fact that, um, and I'm not positive how much this clinical research has changed, but at the time, so in the mid-1950s, research was showing that most people who exhibited schizophren- or paranoid schizophrenia didn't come fully symptomatic until they reached the age of 35. And the, he basically assumed that because the, mat, the Mad Bomber began his crime spree in 1940, he had to have been at least 35 at, in 1940, and it's been 16 years. So he's probably mid-40s, possibly older at this time. That makes sense. Yeah, I think that's a pretty reasonable deduction. And speaking of deductions, <laughs> Brussels used what he he called inferential deductions. And this was literally just using the law of probability mixed with his knowledge of psychiatrics to come to most conclusions. So he stated that his conclusions were, quote, not infallible, so they weren't guaranteed, but neither are they mere guesses. Hmm. And that is a pretty common theme even today with criminal profiling. Mm -hmm. I'll talk about it a little bit more when I talk about the steps of profiling, but basically it's based on the laws of probability that based on everything we know about this database of serial offenders, here's what they're more likely to do because there is strangely patterned between these people. Yeah, that makes sense. But continuing to state the profile for the Mad Bomber, Brussels said that he was, quote, likely symmetrically built, neither neither fat nor skinny. And this was built are based on the research of a German psychiatrist that at the time had correlated body build types with different disorders or um, effects of the mind. Oh, is this kind of like phrenology? Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, it's kind of like phrenology, but instead of only using the brain, he used like your body build. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, So he correlated like most paranoid disorders with like a quote, athletic frame which was basically not too short not too tall not too fat not too skinny like you were a very average shaped individual wild i know like i'd strange. never heard of that i haven't either until i was looking looking into this it's yeah it's interesting so what mm-hmm. science is weird and the evolution <laughs> of it is weird <laughs> yeah but um continuing with it because he was a very detailed individual Based on the neatness or like careful writing in the handwritten letters that um, the Mad Bomber had delivered over the years to different individuals and organizations, Brussels had deduced that the Mad Bomber, quote, was almost certainly a very neat, proper man. As an employee, he had probably been exemplary. He had turned out the highest quality work. He had shown up precisely on time for work each morning he had never been involved in brawls, drunkenness, or any other messy episodes. He had lived a model life until the alleged injustice, and whatever it was had occurred. Unquote. And then moving on from that, he's, he said a very similar thing about his grooming habits, which was, quote, he's probably very neat, tidy, clean shaven, goes out of his way to seem perfectly proper, wears no ornament, jewelry, flashy ties, or clothes. And he's quiet, Im- he's quiet polite, methodical prompt. And, Interesting. yeah and basically all of this is information that like yeah it might not specifically help you solve a murder based on knowing how neat and tidy he was but like it's if they release this information to the public like a neighbor might know him and say yeah he keeps a weirdly clean apartment
2: <laughs> yeah well it speaks a lot to his character too so you kind of like if you see someone who's looking very disheveled. You're like, no, that's probably not him because we think he's like this. Like it just helps narrow it down a bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it helps that um the mad bomber was known to he did not leave evidence at his crime scenes. Like he the only evidence he left was intentional. So that would have included the bombs that he left that were detonated or letters he sent in order like to basically say, "I am the mad bomber." Which he also went by um f p um he called himself that as well, oh okay, but yeah he he only left evidence that was intended to be noticed, basically, yeah, and I feel like a a
2: messy person doesn't
1: wouldn't be able to do that, yeah, absolutely, so then Brussels further explained that and this okay, this one was weird to me <laughs> um, just because it's just because it's Freudian theory, and we all know how we feel about Freud. But he said that the Mad Bomber likely suffered from an Oedipus complex, which for those who don't understand what that is, um, an Oedipus complex is a term coined by Sigmund Freud, which basically means it's when a young boy has an erotic fixation on his mother. And as as a result of the erotic fixation, he feels jealousy of his father and feels like he needs to compete with his father for his mother's love super (laughs) so really weird we also don't really use it anymore
2: (laughs) but there are cases where i feel like it's i feel like now we see it from the mother's side instead of the son's because like there's a a term like enmeshment which is
1: basically
2: the oedipus complex but from the mother's perspective yeah
1: and i feel like i feel like if we looked more into freud he probably would have something about that (laughs)
2: Yeah, and I say this every time we talk about Freud, but it's weird that his biggest supporter was his daughter. Yep, and he also had the like the penis envy.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think Freud was just a weird dude. (laughs) But at the time, people did still like psychiatrists, psychologists were still using his method to some degree. So yeah, part of this profile was that he had an Oedipus complex, and that he felt jealous of his father as a result. But Broussel stated that it wasn't actually likely that he carried resentment of his father into adulthood. Like he kind of grew out of the Oedipus complex, but stated it's almost as if he needed like he had a lingering desire for revenge in his adult life. So he kind of needed something to fill that hole that he wanted revenge on. Weird. Um, Yeah. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that really is
2: confusing almost because it's yeah I just I don't know where he would get that
1: yeah I'm and I I think I did read where he said he would specifically get that and I'll move on which like it'll kind of make sense as to like oh father figure replaced by this but I still don't understand where Oedipus Complex came in like why can't this man just hate a company for the sake of hating a company exactly
0: um, was it, I may have missed this was it like the same time period As Freud and these were coming to light and like there's was a lot of discussion about the the complexes. Could that have been maybe what he was drawing on from?
1: Uh when was Sigmund Freud a
2: lot? The
0: amount that I've learned about Sigmund Freud, I have not retained a lot of the (laughs) the I haven't either. I've only retained the really weird stuff. Yeah.
1: Um, Yeah. Yeah. I haven't retained a whole lot about the specifics of Freud. Mm -hmm. But I just looked it up. He died in 1939 and he was basically working up until that point. So, and this is occurring, like this active criminal profile is happening in 1956. So Freud's, yeah, Freud's theories were very much still prominent and they were kind of like only just being ruled out by other theories at this point. So, he likely suffered o- Oedipus Complex, needed, needed something else to replace the jealousy of his dad. So he said he also likely suffered from paranoia because he transplanted the jealousy and hatred of his father onto someone or something else that had wronged him, which would be a boss or a company, a politician, mm-hmm. president, like some, some other figure that he could basically link to his dad in his head. This really interested the police because it was noted that the Mad Bomber had planted his first bomb at uh, Con Ed, which I realize I never gave the shortened term for it, but Con Ed was that power plant that I had mentioned earlier, Consolidated Edison. That's Con Ed. It's a, yeah, they produced power for like most in New York at the time, I believe. Wild. Yeah. And so the first bomb was planted at Con Ed, and this was also one of the individuals or companies that he was sending letters to in that period that he wasn't actively bombing. And upon further investigation, it appeared that every location that was bombed after the Con Ed bomb were receiving power from Con Ed as well. So they were customers of this power plant. Did his dad work at Con Ed? I'm... It's, that's so close. I I will tell you so soon. (laughs) okay, okay. I'll be (laughs) patient. So another aspect of the profile that came from the way in which the Mad Bombers letters were being phrased. So another quote from Brussels, quote, There was a certain stilted tone in the letters, a total lack of slang or American colloquialisms, somehow the letters sounded to me as though they'd been written in a foreign language and then translated into English, unquote. Oh so cool. it was the belief, and I didn't write this down specifically, but it was the belief by Russell that he was probably from somewhere else in the world who was foreign, but then he specific, and like the law enforcement also believed this. But then he honed in and said, I think he is slavic he's from a slavic country and law enforcement said basically why do you think that Mm -hmm. and it was something to do with they said basically and this is this is all what Brussels said this is not my belief and it's different from the time um but he said that people in slavic countries crime tends to favor bombs and it favors knives I don't know where Knives comes into this case, because again, I'd like to cover it in a future episode. So I'm trying to be somewhat vague. (laughs) But he said, based on the fact that bombs and knives were used in this or by this um, perpetrator, again, using the using the law of probability. I'm not saying for sure he's from a Slavic country, but I'm saying it is quite likely he is from a Slavic country. So the police were like, "Okay, fine. Say Hmm. what you want. Weird. Yeah. And his profile was very long. Like I could honestly, like I said, go like for a full episode about this. So I'm I'm just going to wrap up kind of the Mad Bomber (laughs) Mm -hmm. because I would love to talk about it more. But something else interesting was that Brussels hypothesized he even in the profile hypothesized what the Mad Bomber would be arrested wearing. So he even said, quote, Captain, one more thing. When you catch him, and I have no doubt you will, he will be wearing a double-breasted suit, and it will be buttoned. I'm I've close. seen that quote before. I don't know where, though. Oh, really? That's so mm-hmm. fun. That's
2: so mm. weird. Yeah. Oh, I got like I can't wait to talk about this almost. in the future. <laughs> <laughs> that was weird. That's super weird. Very
1: specific on Brussels' part. Hmm. Right. Like, where did you get this? Yeah. But after his very, very lengthy profile, Brussels findings were printed on the front page of the New York Times on Christmas Day in 1956. And basically they were just waiting for leads. So Brussels never put his name publicly in the newspaper. He basically gave the contact number of the psychiatric hospital he was working in and said, call them, ask for so-and-so, I believe it was an alias, and will take down the information. And so there's another really, there's there's so much fun even about the leads. But again, I want to talk about it later. <laughs> but on January 21st of 1957, detectives arrived at a man's house with an arrest warrant. His name was George Mattesi. He was a former con ed plant worker who was forced to retire early because he was injured on the job and suffered con- or not consequences. I don't remember how he was injured, but he got injured, started to heal, got pneumonia because of the injury, then suffered tuberculosis because of the injury, and because he couldn't go back to work for so long, Con Ed ended up firing him altogether. Wow! That sounds like a
2: lawsuit that's- waiting
1: to happen. Yeah, <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> that's Instead, beside he just the- bombed the- everywhere. Oh ah, I mean, yeah, fear enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So apparently, Meteski had met many of the aspects of Brussels profile. Um, he was middle aged. He was an average build man. He had a history of workplace problems um, after being an upstanding employee for many years. Um, and he was from Lithuania, which is Slavic. Hmm. And some more things. I didn't go over this in the profile, but more things that matched included that he had never been in a relationship and as I said, he kept apparently he also kept a very neat and tidy bedroom. And the article I read actually said um, a creepily neat bedroom. Like it was weirdly hmm. neat, <laughs> like almost sterile. Yeah, like an almost sterily clean bedroom. Wild. Wow. Yeah. So when the detective showed up to arrest him, he was it was I believe it was early morning. He was initially wearing a pair of pajamas And so detectives giving him a little bit of dignity allowed him to go change before taking him into the station. And sure enough, when he emerged from his bedroom, he was wearing a double-breasted blue suit with buttons. Oh, wow. Crazy, Yeah. And I'm part of me thinks it's because it was the 1950s. And I feel like a lot of well-respected men have (laughs) double-breasted suits. Yeah, that's fair. But it's still a pretty a cr- pretty crazy coincidence. <laughs> Do you think that like, this is another
2: conspiracy tangent, that the really, really good profilers are just like super, super intuitive and a little bit psychic. And they're just like, I think he's wearing this. And they just like write it down. And then it just happens to be true because they're
1: like a little psychic. I think in a sense... Yeah, like I think they're all a little eccentric at least. Like I, I was reading reports about Brussels when he was working on this and he was said to have just like he'd just go stand in the door and just like stare out into space for like 10 minutes and then come back and write down like a page of stuff and he's like, I got it. <laughs> oh, wow <laughs> Wild. So he was apparently very fast. Um, like he'd read something, go away with it for a few minutes, come back with like a hypothesis. And I think that's just how their brains work. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, but um, moving on from that. So that was 1957 that the Mad Bomber was apprehended. I'm not going to say what ended up happening to him, as you already know why. I've said it so many times now, <laughs> but that was 1957. So profiling was gaining traction because this was this was like a landslide case. He this had been a manhunt for 16 years now. And profiling um, is what led them to capture. So it wasn't, it hadn't been scientifically validated. And to be completely honest, I'm not sure even to this day, it's been completely scientifically validated, but it's successfully been used enough that we trust it. So moving forward a few years, there's not really any super notable cases, but in the mid like 1960s, a couple agents at the FBI, notably Howard Tetton, had begun kind of Traveling to different FBI departments and also smaller local law enforcement agencies to specifically kind of educate uh, law enforcement in criminology and to not only look at the physical aspects of a crime, but also the behaviors that might lead someone to do it. And all of this can be seen in Mindhunter, the Netflix series. <laughs> but in 1972, this was after all of the hard work and the teachings of FBI agent Howard Tetton who was educated in criminology, as well as the FBI New York Special Agent Patrick Mullaney, who was educated in educational psychology. They worked together to teach all sorts of fun behavioral psychology stuff. And then the FBI ended up opening the Behavioral Science Unit to advance the concepts that they had been teaching across the FBI and regional law enforcement agencies over the previous years. So the Behavioral Science Unit, or BSU, was in addition to just being because they wanted to kind of advance the research they've already achieved, they also did it because it was the early 70s and there was a crazy rise in sexual assaults and homicides occurring in the US and they just needed something new to help them kind of combat this problem. Yeah. So when the BSU opened in 1972, they only had 10 agents. And at its inception, the BSU mainly was consulting with criminal justice professionals all over the world. um, And it was usually only for really weird or like strange, difficult cases. However, it ended up growing into a unit with lots of agents on its own who were specifically working to develop criminal profiles And they were using behavioral analysis to determine um, kind of the most effective ways to interview suspects to get like important information out of them. So fast forward a couple more years, there are three agents who have actively been working in the BSU, John E. Douglas, Robert Ressler and Dr. Ann Burgess. In 1976, they were given clearance to begin developing a centralized database of serial offenders. And they traveled across the USA interviewing serial criminals. So this was serial rapists, serial killers, um, just serial offenders to obtain information about their motives, their methods of planning and preparation, um, to learn all the specifics and details of each crime, as well as stuff like how they disposed of evidence, how they chose victims, how they chose the weapons they used, like basically every single aspect of a serial criminal's crime they wanted to get the information from the criminal themselves. So after, um, through the course of three years, Douglas Wrestler, well, sorry, Burgess, I believe, was still in Quantico helping to develop the database, but Douglas and Wrestler were actively traveling and interviewing. Over three years, they ended up interviewing 36 serial offenders. And it was around this point Um, that they considered their database complete, or at least complete enough at the time where they had a legitimate basis for conducting other profiles based on their database. So their work ended up being instrumental in developing much of what we know about common typologies of serial offenders today, and was also very helpful when developing profiles of unknown perpetrators. So the BSU went over multiple changes over the years that I'm not going to go into excessive detail, but most of these changes were largely to which departments oversee behavioral analysis and how behavioral analysis is being used in each department against perpetrators. But one of the more significant changes in this time was, took place in 1985 when the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime, or the NCAVC, um, was established in the BSU, so the NCAVC was not actually a new department per se, but it was a new system of record keeping. So it was a new database, and it was it contained the completed serial offender database that Douglas and Wrestler had just spent three years completing. And the NCAVC contained everything that there was to know about a case. So this included crime scene descriptions and photos statements from witnesses, victims if they survived, families, everyone, um, known descriptors of the victims of potential offender, news reports, court documents, documentation of the communication and coordination of law enforcement agencies. It essentially was a one-stop shop for everything to do with an active case that potentially involved a serial offender. So this database was used in cases of homicide missing and or unidentified persons, sexual assault and sexual assault cases, and was incredibly helpful in assisting investigators in determining whether crime scenes were related. And they did this by analyzing all of the um, crime scenes, basically filtering what they knew about their own and seeing which ones were similar enough to potentially provide them further information that could help them find their own perpetrator. Nice. Yeah. So with regards to how criminal profiling is performed, there are generally multiple facets of a comprehensive profile. And the most common are being an evaluation of the criminal act itself. So whether it was a sexual assault, homicide, both, whether it was a robbery, um, physical assault, evaluation of that, because that would tell you first off a little bit about the individual. Next mm-hmm. would be a comprehensive evaluation of the specifics of the crime scene. Was it violent? Was it organized? Was it in public? Was it in private? Um, was the body cleaned up? How was the body positioned? Everything to do simply with like the physical aspects of a crime. Next was a compre- comprehensive analysis of the victim. So then they look at um, the victim that was targeted. What do they look like? What's their hair, eye color, ethnicity? you have tattoos how what do you work are you in a good or bad socioeconomic situation who do you hang around with um because as we know for example in the case of Ted Bundy he was often targeting he targeted brunettes correct yeah <laughs> yeah so with the yeah. case of Ted Bundy they would this would have been quite important because they noticed all of the victims were female they were brunette um they might have had personality traits that were similar i am Quite frankly and they were right all now.
2: like university age. Like they were like 18 to 21 because yeah. I was in that age when I learned about him and I went down a Ted Bundy rabbit hole and I was so oh. afraid because it was the first time where
1: I matched like the victim profile and I was oh, like, I'm no. so afraid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, it's, it's funny actually mentioning Ted Bundy. He's actually one of the, I believe they solved the Ted Bundy case within 10 years of the BSU being established So that was like one of the landmark cases that uh, like established the F the BSU as like a genuinely helpful addition to the FBI. Yeah. But those were like kind of the main four um, facets of a criminal profile. And then of course, as other important evidence comes up, like they'll take that into account as well. So they could look at like, Obviously, if if there's an autopsy report available, they'll look at that. But using all of this information, investigators were able to piece together an approximate story um, and then compare that crime scene and that um, little bit of information that's individual to that one. They could put it into the database that we discussed earlier and basically see how many crime scenes were similar enough and they were able to then sort of look back at the typology of the known perpetrator of the similar case, and kind of pull out like specific as- aspects to say, "Oh, well, maybe the Atlanta child murder is similar to Bundy in this way because of the victim type or because of the location." And then that's how they build a profile, right? So then, typically, um, these profiles would often be shared with like the public or just shared widespread within like law enforcement agencies around the state in hopes that then these can be used to help the public help us identify someone that might fit the description.
2: Right. So they're kind of doing like the opposite of all of the other police departments of like, we're not going to talk to anyone. And the FBI is like, we're going to talk to everyone. Everyone's going to yeah. know what we're looking for.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, so we put together a really, really specific profile of what we think this person looks like, acts like talks like and like where they work based mm-hmm. on these heinous crimes. Does anyone know anyone remotely similar to this? If so, please yeah. call us. <laughs> I feel like
2: a lot of crimes could be solved if even just the police departments were kind of like, this is what I'm
1: looking for. And the other police departments were like, hey, we have a guy who does the same stuff. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: I, I yeah. totally agree. That was one thing I remember. Like, I found that really important about the database that they created was that it did also compile, like, communications and information from, like, um, serial offenses from other jurisdictions. Like, they could all put it into this database and be like, oh, I have a case just like that. hmm Can I see more? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but just in terms of the Atlanta child murders, it was actually the first major case that John Douglas cracked with the BSU, which I thought was really fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so... I am now realizing I really very much should have read Mindhunter um, because I didn't realize how much it talked about the Atlanta child murders, but his official report, like the official criminal profile, unless it's in that book, has never been publicly released. Um, I know he does discuss it in his book, but I think it was like a two-page document that was solely a profile. However, he did state, quote that, um, sorry, Williams is, quote, very much like other serial killers researched and interviewed in the past by the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit, unquote. And it's also stated that in the report, Williams, according to Douglas, was likely a black man um, because his victims were all black children. And also that Williams was likely pampered and overprotected in his youth, given most of or at All over, most of his victims were children. Furthermore, Douglas wrote after the trials commenced, he said, quote, Wayne Williams is an angry young man seeking power who wears a mask to cover his personal inadequacies. The Atlanta serial murder case was his first success and this furnished a sense of power to him. Wayne Williams orchestrated this case at will. He challenged authorities, intimidated them and played out his own script he got almost every police jurisdiction involved in this case and then created scenarios where all police jurisdictions would become involved, unquote. Hmm. And then the very last slide I had was just discussing Douglas's opinion on the case that he was not involved in all of the murders that are associated with the Atlanta child murders. So I won't go into that because, Journey, I know that you did. But yeah, I do just think it's fascinating that he is a very strong opinion that he is not Williams is not the offender of every one of these and that police know who they are, Mm -hmm. but it's not a pleasant truth and they're not seeking indictment, which is crazy.
2: Yeah. Very like, how can you not be seeking indictment? Like for murders, it's the state has to pursue the
1: trial. So like, yeah, pursue the trial. I know it's it's not like the victim can pursue the trial. The victim is deceased. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like,
2: I get if you don't have enough evidence or like I I don't understand what like the people not wanting to indict has to do anything. Like absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it just seems wild. I'm just looking to see because I know he talked about something in the Mindhunter book where he gave like a press conference on his profile or his work on the case. And they took they misunder they misreported something that he said. He's like I said this and they changed oh. it. I said this and he was like really mad about that. Oh, so that's so interesting. Looking to see if I can find it.
1: Yeah. But as far as my information on criminal profiling goes, um and behavioral analysis, that's what I have. I got really into the history of applied behavioral analysis and then realized that they're totally different. <laughs> And then upon further research, realized behavioral, criminal behavioral analysis and criminal profiling are like the same thing. And I was like, oh, perfect. Amazing. Um, I found the
2: thing or whatever. He said, like, the story had gotten a lot of attention nationally. So when I took questions from this audience of more than 500 people, someone asked my opinion of the Williams arrest. And so he gave some background on the case and their involvement with it and how they came up with the profile. And he said... He fit the profile, and added carefully that if it did turn out to be him, I thought he quote looked pretty good for a good percentage of the killings end quote. And so mm. then they misreported it. They just kind of oh. said he looks pretty good for a good percentage of the killings instead of if it did turn out to be him.
1: Yeah, they just completely took it
2: out of context.
1: Exactly. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, and so you can never like- quite trust everything that like is being reported. Exactly. Mm. Well, and who
2: knows, like, even not to call John Douglas a liar, but like, if that had happened to me and I had had the like consequences that he kind of got after that, I would definitely write in my book that that's not how that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. So there's also like he's trying to cover his own butt, but like, who knows? I kind of took this, I took it like he was telling the truth in this book. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just thought that he had said that they told the profile. So when you said that no one knew the profile. I was kind of confused, but he had just said how they came up with the profile, not what it was.
1: Okay. Yeah. It's like, at least as far as my research goes, like there's like in every case it involves a profile, like there's an official report that details absolutely everything they've determined based on this research. Um, right. and as far as I've read, his entire report has never been published. But of course, he has spoken heavily on like, this is what I said. This is what I based it on. It's it's just like what he officially gave the FBI hasn't been released.
2: Interesting. Oh, Gotcha. Gotcha.
1: Yeah. Wild. Okay. okay I love it.
0: Well, thank you for telling us all about that and like providing case examples too. So we could like see the evolution of criminal profiling or behavioral analysis. Sorry. Same thing interchangeable. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much
1: interchangeable.
0: <laughs> but I love that it goes back to like the late 1800s. I don't know why, but I always associated it with the emergence through John Douglas and like them in the FBI. And I don't know if it's just yeah. because I was heavily influenced by Mindhunter and his books that he's written, but um it's fascinating to see that there's a history before even then. With that, Our next topic is the much-anticipated Jitsi Rose Blanchard. I'm quite intrigued and excited about that. Mm -hmm. And to see about like the new what's come to light since her release. I've seen things here and there through social media. I haven't delved into it yet, but I'm intrigued.
1: Yeah, I know a lot about um, the initial case but admittedly have been trying to distance myself from her newfound fame being released because I'm like, I think you just need to go into hiding, girl. Like, don't do this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Very much Um,
0: so. I have a little fun, interesting forensic corner type thing. Yay. I love that. There is, so the Oakville and Milton Humane Society, these are towns just outside of where I lived in Ontario they're moving, I guess. I guess circumstances, they've got to move their space. But it turns out they have a little pet cemetery of over 580 plots. What? Some have one animal, some have more than one animals. Like there was a pony and a dog that were buried together in this little pet cemetery. But forensic students at the University of Toronto... Are disinterring the remains, logging them, storing them, and they're trying to get in contact with the family members to either like bring the fam the animal back home if that's what they want, or rebury at their new place, wherever that may be, or cremate them.
1: That's wow. so emotional.
0: Yeah. And so they were saying like some animals were buried in like little pint-sized boxes or like coffins. They had little shoe boxes. Some of the animals in there, urns. They even found Aww. the remains of one pet in a little KFC bucket. <laughs> and, like, and you got to think, like, was that his favorite food? Did he love a good yeah. KFC drumstick? This makes me emotional. Oh, all the sweet babies. There's so many of them. Right, some had their favorite toys found with them, Aww. some had their food or water bowls found with them. Aww. Um, the last burial though was actually in 1990, so it's been a little while since they've added wow. to it.
1: Oh, that surprises um, me! Wow, you had me like just about crying right here. You're like, oh my god, <laughs> I'm like, wait, 1990 that's crazy. <laughs> like, <laughs>
0: um, but they have like little headstones and stuff, like, they it, they took good care of these little animals and the pets um and so That's the students so and the lead on the project was saying that it could take up to 2 years for this study or i guess this um i guess it would also be a study because there's forensic u- science students from the University of Toronto it's mm-hmm. kind of like a study um mm-hmm. but yeah they up to 2 years to fully and they said too that they have made a promise that no animal will be left behind. Stop. <laughs> yeah.
2: That's so, so I think sweet. that's
0: why it's going to take the two years because obviously Canadian winters, mm-hmm. the ground freezes. You can't really do much with that. Um, but they're going to do their very best to get all of the little animals back to their owners if they're still around. Uh-huh. Or rebury them in a new cemetery in the new land
1: that they find. Got me straight up tearing up over here. That's so (laughs) bittersweet. Oh my God. Like, I'm just thinking about when we buried my cat growing up with like her favorite little blanket. I'm like, oh, oh, the
0: babies. (laughs) They were cared for in their life and the afterlife, I will say. But it's a very...
1: So kind of the SPCA.
0: Right? The little humane society. And... um. They just recently started this. So they started in November of 2023. So oh, hopefully wow. we'll hear updates to follow. And I don't know mm-hmm. if they've even found a new place for this humane society. But I can't imagine how big the cemetery would have been for four, 580 plots. That's,
2: yeah. And to have ponies buried
0: too. there. Yeah. They had all types of animals.
1: Wild. That's so fascinating and emotional. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Not very lighthearted, but it's forensics related. (laughs) And
0: they are trying to make it as lighthearted as they can. And like, they love finding new things about the plots. Like they said, it just brings them so much joy to find like the toys that are buried with them or like the little artifacts that are buried with them. Yeah. So I hope we find out more as the years go by and i know lewis yes oh lewis, lewis. <laughs> <laughs> he what <he loved. laughs> anyways <laughs> um but yes that is my little fun interesting emotional forensic tidbit for this episode you can find us and more of what we talk about and everything what the forensics related on our website whattheforensics.ca but oh, we're also on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at what the forensics, our Twitter, or X. Not that, but it is WT Forensics PC. <laughs> Lewis is really trying to be helpful, but it's not and he yeah, just wants to sir. say the outro. He really does. If you do want to email us any comments, concerns, suggestions, literally anything, or just want to say hi, email us at what the forensics at gmail.ca give us a Mm, review.com gmail.com gmail.com yes Yes. (laughs) good one on that so it's what the forensics at gmail.com review us tell us what you think give us five stars we would very much appreciate that (laughs) because everything counts and it helps us Mm -hmm. this has been another two episodes if you caught our first one and this one of what the forensics We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you learned something. We hope we made you think a little bit deeper. We'll see you next time and we'll catch you later. Bye. Bye.
2: (laughs) Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you next week.